our mission, and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that, when implemented, will improve our safety, our environment and how we govern out business. We are making the world safer and we're going to have fun doing it. So welcome back to the uh, Mission Zero podcast. Um, Justin Overstreet flying solo uh, without Jeff this week. He's out God knows where, uh, parts unknown. So uh, shout out to Jeff, uh, wherever he may be in the world. Um, but he's not the story here. We're, uh, we're actually going to talk to uh, Kirk Waltz. Uh, Kirk works for uh, ABS. And um, Kirk and I have known each other now for... Whew, Probably close to 10 years. Yeah, maybe 10 uh, or 11 years. Yeah. Uh, worked together at Xterran and then uh, again um, at Arch Rock. And so I left and then I came back and uh, I missed him so much. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but, uh, but, but Kirk, welcome. I'm glad you're able to, to make it up to the, uh, the home studio here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Justin. Yeah, fantastic. So tell me a little bit about your background, uh, your Cali kid, how you got to, to Texas as soon as you could. And uh, just kind of your background, your history, uh, and, uh, and and get us up to date where we are right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm, I'm an environmental engineer from Northern California, a beach town called Santa Cruz, California, Shocking. if you're familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. what everyone says when they see mm-hmm. me. And I, pursuing environmental engineering, uh, graduated with my bachelor's and master's degree from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And in 2008, there weren't many places hiring. And so... Houston was, and that's where we went. But, you know, serendipitously, it was something that I think really fit my my career ambitions anyways. Mm-hmm. I mean, growing up on the West Coast, there's a lot of environmental advocacy and not a lot of action, um, at least from a technical standpoint, which is I'm an engineer. So that's what I preferred, or at least I always kind of lean towards that more technical. Yeah. Doing um, something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the oil and gas industry is... You know, always looking for ways to improve the environmental from the environmental perspective. So there is a lot to do out here and started off as an environmental consultant for for refineries and chemical plants and big heavy industry and manufacturers throughout the state of Texas, across the U.S. And that transitioned to more general environmental consulting than working at Xterran with you. I was a senior environmental specialist doing kind of, I would call it, inward facing consulting mm-hmm. where you know it was my job to help support our operations with all things environmental regulatory compliance related issues and you know from there transitioned to Artrock where I became a manager in our health and safety department for systems and support so it became a bit more generalized HSC management but that kind of broadened my horizons even more to seeing these opportunities like ESG with our treasury department at Artrock and that <laughs> turned into what got me this job at American Bureau of Shipping. It's this really interesting and, from, and from my mind, kind of growing exponentially demand for technical environmental compliance related like, solutions that, that kind of spans the entire industry from financial side to operational side. So 
I saw this really interesting gap between the two that I, I've been kind of pursuing ever since. That's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, and, and your role at Arch Rock and Xterran when, when I was there is, you know, my role was a, a field manager, uh, you know, over a district, right? And then you helped support us. And so a lot of times our titles uh, out in the, you know, doing what, what I do is, is HSC and, and the E is, is so small uh, <laughs> because it's, there's, it's so technical and there's so much involved in really truly getting proficient at it that it, uh, it it's always nice to have guys like you. And, and, uh, and, and that's something that Xterran and, and Artrock also did really well, I think, in terms of uh, supporting that, uh, that, that field manager role, because, we had everything in the world to look at and, and environmental was just that thing that you're like, Oh, please don't spill anything today. Please don't have too many missions, you know, that kind of thing. But it was something that we definitely needed to support. So, um, uh, so fantastic. So when you said, uh, you know, you, you from California where you see a lot of activism around environmental, uh, you know, impact and those types of things, uh, but not a, a lot of action. Right. So tell me what that looks like uh, in, in just a, a little bit. For me, I think the action is more circulated around actually engaging with industry and trying to improve things. I mean, obviously, California is, what, like the fifth largest economy on the planet or something like that. So there's plenty of industries out there and and operating fine. But I I really, it was really fun coming to Texas, seeing how much, I guess, maybe different diversified industries are out here as well and engaging with kind of the, the people in the field, operators, doing the work mm-hmm. and you know, you had to come out there as a business partner and figure out ways to just make them re- like, you know, help them realize that this is a kind of a, a, an expectation of the organization, but there's also external forces requiring these sorts of environmental compliance restrictions or sure technical demands that just had to balance the, all these different kind of, I'm curious when you're in California, you know, there's this uh, stigma with oil and gas that we don't care about the environment at all. That all we do is tear it up and, and we do it in the, the, uh, the, the name of it, the almighty dollar or whatever. <laughs> what did you have that conception of uh, oil and gas being from California before you uh, ended up in the field? It was, a, I think a jaded opinion for sure. I mean, I didn't really didn't know anything about it. I think the most talked about incident, and kind of about the oil and gas industry was the the, um, the ExxonMobil Valdez mm-hmm. uh, oil spill. That was for some reason that it resonates with me because I think it was it was uh, it was focused on and it's a Surfrider Foundation commercial that that still plays in my head to this day. <laughs> so there are portions of it that they that they really focused on, you know, being the bad guy of the mm-hmm. in, of the, in, the industry. But I, I just through my own personal curiosity, I, I very soon realized that everything we do requires <laughs> the oil and gas industry. Everything we, everything that's made, everything we wear, mm-hmm. everything to do anything on a daily basis. So at a very young age, I kind of was able to take a step back and say, okay, well, it's not very, it's not terribly equitable to say they're just evil because. They provide so much, so many resources to to every industry. Yeah, I just had that conversation actually with uh, one of our our neighbors. Uh, uh, she's from Cal- uh, Colorado, and uh, not opposed to oil and gas, but uh, but certainly not in the the industry either. Uh, and and that was the point I made to her was you know, okay, do away with oil and gas, and then so you go do away with your modern medicine, 
all the plastic that you have, you know, just name it, right? It's not just gasoline. So kind of interesting. You, I assume you have a lot of family still uh, yeah, in California, everyone. and they're yeah. very proud of the fact that you're in oil and gas, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Outside of your parents that have to be proud of you, for sure. Well, you know, I've been here for 12 years, and and every every time I go back, every ever since I moved here, someone in the family or a family friend always asks me if I if I do fracking. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. They call you a mother fracker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything. Yeah. They, and I, I had to explain to them in very simple details that there's a lot more of the, to the industry than just hydraulic fracturing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which that, that though is uh, certainly what gets the press anyway, <laughs> but, uh, well, awesome. So then you end up at, uh, at, um, ABS, which is interesting because it, that company's, uh, business model isn't, it started offshore, right? Yeah, ABS is American Bureau of Shipping is a is a class society, mm-hmm. you know, providing class notations for vessels for for offshore environment mm-hmm. for for shipping, and they have they're non for profit, you know, globally recognized, but they've expanded through a lot of different industries for mar- marine, maritime, offshore, marine support ports and port infrastructure. There's also a subsidiary that does a lot of risk and reliability and natural hazards um, assessments and evaluations as well. So everything that kind of is kind of to support the the marine and maritime industry and offshore industries has become part of their business model. And so it's been really fun kind of learning all the different things that they do, even though they're very specialized in one industry, but it kind of, you kind of get to see how that industry affects so many other things and how interconnected it is and how they still facilitate and support all these other support industries as well. And then, and then that just sort of naturally, you know, blends into doing, you know, land-based operational type things as well. Absolutely. Uh, And then you mentioned, you know, the risk assessment side, and I would imagine that's where the ESG and stuff falls in or where does it line up in the, in the company's sort of verticals? So we have a very specialized ESG um, sustainability group mm. that is, has a global footprint for marine and maritime industry okay. and for vessels and, and ship owners and, and the entire kind of span of the marine maritime industry. And I was brought in to help kind of grow that onshore as well. And it's, you know, we're, we're still in kind of early phases, but we are, our intention is to, you know, utilize that expertise for the marine and maritime industry and kind of take that upstream to keep supporting kind of the agencies and industries that are direct contact and connection with, with the maritime industry. And they brought you on to sort of head up that initiative, the, the bringing it on shore. And, um, and so how's that going? When did you, first of all, when did you get, get started with them? I started in July of last year right? and I've gone through a few little kind of internal transitions to support kind of their broader scope of work as well. So it's, it's been going really well. It's been, been, uh, Exciting. Yeah, I imagine it's a, a huge learning um, opportunity, I bet, given the how vast that company's portfolio yeah. is. And then uh, it, I imagine they're excited to have you there to, to bring your in, you know your own unique uh, take on it and, and, uh, and further that. And so uh, we've had some uh, other people that are have ESG responsibilities within companies. I think you might be the first uh, person that's probably more of like a dedicated ESG specialist. Um, and what's interesting about that is I don't know how many of those are going to exist in the world, but my suspicion is ESG is going to become 
unless you have a corporate attorney who will get handed that, uh, it will become like quality management or any other sort of uh, thing where you're you're measuring, you know, very finite metrics and documentation and all of that. It'll get handed off to the safety person. And uh, and, and ESG right now probably is going to – please correct me if I get any of this wrong, but from my vantage point, ESG right now looks like it's going to be sort of um, the – it's going to be up to larger companies to sort of lead the way because they're going to be the ones most directly impacted at first, but it's going to trickle down to smaller companies, especially smaller companies that are going to rely on, you know, private equity and those types of things um, to, to generate capital for operating. And, uh, and so my question to you is, first of all, do I have that right? And then (laughs) second of all, uh, how can the average safety person out there, that, uh, like I said, usually we're good with the H and the S, but a small E, and now they're going to hand us environmental, <laughs> social, and governance, uh, you know, sustainability-type metrics. What, what's their what, – what advice would you give that person, and, uh, and, and how can that person be supported? <laughs> That's yeah. There's a lot. <laughs> Good luck, I guess. But remember, first, first, did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think you you're on the right track. Um, you're absolutely correct that it's the large publicly traded firms with a global footprint who are feeling the heat currently, mm-hmm. um, without a doubt. I mean, they are the ones that are going to be that are initiating this and trying to at least set a standard to the global expectations of a net zero by 2050 target. I think. The UN uh, Sustainability Development Goals are, are relatively kind of the norm across across the, the planet, more or less. Um, and so when you say net zero, zero like net zero carbon emissions. So if whatever you emit is either negated by carbon credits or carbon sequestration or carbon capture or some form of so I understand carbon. I understand carbon capture. Yeah, I mean, carbon credits. So when you say that, and I'm a natural cynic, so <laughs> yeah. when when you say that, I'm like, okay, so what is that? What's a how, how do you get carbon credits? So you you're more or less buying carbon dioxide units. Got you from from an industry or an organization that can show that they are you know providing a negative carbon impact footprint. Okay. Um, there's actually quite a few in Texas. Uh, there's a couple uh, out of a, an organization called B Carbon out of Rice University that provides a, a very detailed and strategic way for companies to invest in prairie lands, development of prairie lands to to actually have quantitative evidence of a negative carbon footprint that they can invest in. And that's just one example. I mean, there's people doing this stuff all over the place. So, so what you're saying is. Let's say you have uh, organization A and they have a carbon footprint and you have organization B and they have a carbon footprint, but their carbon footprint is negative. So then I can buy up the ones that they didn't. Essentially, I can buy their negative supply. Yeah. To, th- yeah. To supplement my positive <laughs> output. Yeah. And this isn't That's the first. interesting, man. Yeah. And it's not, this is, is not the first time in history that these sort of schemes have been tried. Um, I think I remember when I actually, before I moved to Houston, I was sitting in a, an environmental consulting company. It was actually during an interview. I sat in on a conversation about the Chicago climate exchange, which has since folded. 
Um, and they really in Chicago. Yeah, and they were they were there was a carbon trading scheme. Hmm. Um, and but that wasn't the first one that was tried either. And I forget the history, but there was the, what precedes that. There was I forget what it was, but these have been tried before. And and as you mentioned, you're you're right to be cynical about it all because I actually feel I'm a bit reticent to the concept as well. And there's actually a growing demand for uh, uh, I guess for a bit more quantitative evidence of a of a CO two reduction emissions reduction. Um, the term is called additionality, where that seems it, made up. It, <laughs> that seems like a made up. It word. sounds like two 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 words that actually can make sense. Put them together, and okay, well, it has whatever that means now. That's a fancier word, yeah. for sure. But it, it's you know the intention is to show that this actually retains or or sequesters or keeps carbon out of the atmosphere forever or, an exi- or a long additional period of time. I'm running the risk of this whole thing being taken over by carbon credits <laughs> because okay. I have like a billion questions yeah, in my head right now. Like, you know, is there a, does geography play into it? Like could company A in Italy buy carbon credits from company B in Texas and be okay? And and that may, that's, a, you know, that's a bit yeah. extreme or does it have to be more uh, locally um, sourced and wants to stop the company from buying up all of the carbon credits available and then skyrocketing the price? That is a good question. You know, I think, I, you know, depending, these are kind of schemes that you kind of pay into. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can, you can source them, I think from wherever they are. Um, and honestly, it's kind of one of the areas of this that I've spent the less amount of time in oh. just be, for this reason of kind of being a bit cynical and being an sure. engineer about it all. It's kind uh, of interesting. You know, yeah, we, it is. It, we always looked at, uh, you know, at Exterian, we had those paint bays, right? And, you, you know, we put a lot of paint through them and you had a, a lot of emissions as a result <laughs> yeah. of that. And I always thought it was interesting because at the end of the year, you'd have to turn in your, your admissions and then they would tell you how much that costs. And I, my what I always got frustrated by, it was like, okay, there's nothing being done about, hey, stop emitting. It's just, <laughs> hey, here's how much it'll cost you to admit. Yeah. And uh, and I always found that to be really interesting, especially given the fact that all the other parts of the HSC world, H and S, are about how do you eliminate it from yeah. happening. And uh, the environmental side always seemed to me like um, just oh, you could just – it wasn't about elimination as much. And so when I hear going back to what originally triggered my mind was when you said net zero. And I remember listening to a podcast, uh, that's probably a year ago now, but it was Elon Musk and Joe Rogan. Yeah. And, uh, I probably just got our podcast canceled mentioning Joe Rogan, (laughs) but whatever. But, you know, they had an interesting conversation going and, uh, they were talking about, you know, hydrogen being a, a zero emitter. Right. And Elon Musk goes, well, it depends on how far back you want to go. Sure, at point of so- source, it's zero. But to get that, you are you have all kinds of emissions. Yeah. And so uh, that's always been kind of interesting to me. You know, people, yeah, and it's like I told that neighbor when we were talking about oil and gas, I was like, you know, those wind farms, those windmills use hundreds of gallons of oil and, to keep them from seizing. Yeah. Up. I mean, it's just the way it is. But uh, so- Going back now, so you follow the the UN has the the net zero resolution, and when did you say that is twenty fifty? Twenty fifty, yeah. And and you know it's funny. I was talking to someone about this today, where she asked me if if that seems like if that goal even seems reasonable. 
And if it doesn't get met, is that a problem? And from my mind, I guess this is the engineer in me still kind of coming out that I see, I mean, I think that's a great kind of, I don't know, target. Though I, I believe that there's going to be greater innovation and technology that will get us well past or below a net zero target, probably a lot farther past 2050. But I think the, tech, the innovation that will come out of this, I guess call it investment now, into this research and development, I think will far exceed expectations kind of on a kind of very much bit more futuristic, like, I guess, state, I suppose. You know, and that's the, I think the point a lot of times um, of these, you know, seemingly unrealistic goals, right? Where you say, you know, we're, we're going to do this and you're like, and then of course the conservative in me, in me immediately is like, no, you can't do any of that. And for all of these reasons, but if you look at it from that vantage point and you say, you know, this is, this is a conversation starter. This is a place for us to kind of plant a flag and say, try. And I, th- I think you're exactly right. The innovation that'll come out of that will be unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, if you think about uh, in the oil and gas industry, and like you said, you had some preconceptions when you came out here. I don't know that there's another industry in the world that does more to protect the environment than oil and gas. And, uh, that gets lost in translation just because we're an easy villain. Yeah. Um, and uh, and this podcast is not wholly oil and gas, but it's heavily that uh, <laughs> because that's what I am and and what I've been. You know, my I was born in Midland. That's what you do. Um, so when you look at this and you say, you know, the, those large companies are the ones that are going to be, you know, thrust into the forefront of kind of leading this ESG movement. Uh, is that where? And ESG is still relatively new. I know that our company started looking at it. Wildcat started looking at it a couple of years ago, and we're private. We're privately held. But our CEO, uh, he wanted us to proactively start looking at it, right, and start start kind of researching it. And then um, guess who that got handed to? To our corporate attorney, who then handed it to me. So. <laughs> And that yeah. was fine. And and it was a like I looked at it the same as you uh with uh, with ABS. It's a great opportunity for me to learn, right? Yeah. So I went what did I do? I went to Schlumberger. I went to all these other service company websites and looked at their sustainability reports. And it was interesting what I learned. It wasn't it wasn't just hey, we use we consumed this much electricity and so we're going to consume this much less next year. It was you know, hey, we put these social programs in place. You know, we yeah. you know donated to this school or we you know, worked at this soup kitchen or whatever they did, right? And uh, and then you know, looking at the the makeup of their you know management team and and all of those things, and and um, I think those are positive steps forward. Are you starting to see that now in smaller companies, either proactively looking at it or being told, "Hey, this is something you need to do." I think there's a lot of a lot of companies are being proactive about it. <clears throat> and like you said, I think a lot of the stuff they already do and have already done just on a continuous basis with community outreach and development and just normal operations that require relatively high level of compliance and environmental compliance or safety, you know, you know, everyone every industry has has some level of target zero incidents and accidents and environmental issues. So the, it's it's kind of understanding that I think this ESG and sustainability is already kind of ingrained in what the organ what the industry does, no matter the really the size of them. 
but it's just translating that into this, I guess, disclosure, which makes it a little more serious to call it, mm-hmm. where they can potentially be, you know, it, how cynical the the legal team is that that they they don't want to disclose a lot of things because they're afraid of it being, you know, a liability later, you know, in future years or something like that. Sure, but I think most like the smaller companies I think are starting to get proactive about it, just getting something out, getting a report out there, just showing that they have it, especially if they're looking for financing. That's where a lot of this is being driven by. Mm-hmm. Um, with our, When I was working with Artrock, when I started, my interest started, kind of got peaked with a lot of this in 2018, 2019. It was being driven by the treasury and the financial department because the, their, in, their investors and shareholders and the the lending agencies are saying you need a report or we can't lend you what you need. Right. And that seems to be trickling down faster than maybe kind of the industry kind of trickle down, I think. So a lot of it is in just in preparation for kind of the expectation that you have to have something. Right. That ultimately that'll be used as a, a scoring mechanism. Yeah. Right. And that may not always be the best kind of outcome in all of this, especially with considering, in my opinion, there's a lot of good that comes out of these things by documenting the good things that the company or the organ an organization does or has been doing. But the, this is becomes kind of a, that exercise where it loses a lot of its kind of, I don't know, community sort of development side of things. I think. What do you mean by that community development side? I think or, like big organizations do so much for, for the industry, for industry and surrounding communities, that these sometimes these formal ESG reports have a tendency just to become, I don't know, just a, a box checking exercise or something like that, where right. where all of a sudden you kind of lose the importance of what their mission was, as opposed to just getting something that meets the expectations of of some lending lender or something like that. Right. So it, you end up changing the heart behind what's happening. Yeah. Right? So it let's let, you know, if I'm running a, a local yard for, you know, wildcat or Exterran or arch rock or whomever, um, it, it's, it, I, I think I understand what you're saying. It takes a little bit away from, from it to say, well, we need to make sure we have a, a sign on five little league fields. Yeah. Versus saying, Hey man, donate what you can to the little league you know, the local little league or, you know, whatever it, once you start putting a metric on it, then it just becomes a, just another objective, just another KPI. Right. Yeah. And it's funny. I, I was just thinking back to kind of the exterior days as well, where I started working with a lot of our, uh, kind of charitable organization group from at the corporate, at the, at the corporate, um, level where we're trying to f- promote all the good things we're doing. And, come to find out all these really really dedicated people are doing all these really great things all over the country out of their shops with the local community and we would step in and say hey we want to publicize this and they most of them are saying well, no we right. don't need you to do that that's not right. what it's, we're doing this for it's like uh it's like volunteering your time and then telling everybody you volunteered yeah. your time it somehow cheapens that you yeah know? It, and, it has a potent it can potentially i think so yeah. So that's a that's a, a challenge I think that will always exist. What do you think we can do to get around that to to keep people from creating it uh, from uh, turning it into a check the box exercise or just another KPI? 
What are things that, that you think could um, keep it from becoming that? That's a good question. I think, I think they have a company has to promote it anyways. <laughs> yeah, the, which, the, which some of that will just you, you'll you'll just have to. Right? Yeah, yeah, and but support it, promote it, and just you know just kind of move on. I think you know don't don't bring too much attention to the people don't want to be acknowledged for it. Don't acknowledge them for it, but still, like somehow I, don't, I guess I'm not even sure how to even explain this, but credit should be given. And support should be given, and whether they want acknowledgement externally is up to them. But this still should be a, a core value of the of the company, whether they get scrutinized for it or if it's supported by by stakeholders or shareholders or advocacy groups. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that is important, actually, to, to be able to, to just say, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. We're just going to go ahead and capture the information, too, because it's becoming more of an expectation. Yeah. This is something we were already doing. And, and in fact... Uh, when we built our report for Wildcat, and especially on the social side of things where you're looking at, you know, donating backpacks to an entire school or, you know, whatever, which we do all of that already. Yeah. Uh, we looked at it, it not it, not in terms of a how we have to disclose all this information because we don't. We're yeah. privately held. It's just we wanted to put it together and, and just look at it. It looked it became quickly to us, you know, look what we can brag about. Look, look what we can we can demonstrate, you know being active in the communities that we, that we touch. And I think as long as uh, I, I think if you can keep that messaging around it, you know, brag about what you're doing rather, yeah. rather than tell on what you're doing. It, yeah. It's a different thing, right? Yeah. And kind of even kind of expanding that to kind of the whole ESG reporting, a lot of the big organizations now are being accused of greenwashing is the kind of the, the new term where they promote all these things they're doing that may not have any quantitative value to say CO2 emissions reductions, mm -hmm. but there's a qualitative value to community development or developing countries for depending on how lar large the organization is. And um, I think the best example I have is like Disney corporations. They have this um, corporate or this, their, their ESG report is, is massive. Sure. And a lot of it is just saying we've always done this. This is what we did, and this mm -hmm. is what we continue to do. And, I mean, they get scrutinized just like every other large multinational corporation. Sure. But I think you just kind of say, yeah, you can you can scrutinize us, but we this is right. This is the right thing to do, and this is what we plan to do. And really kind of you can take that back to whatever size company, whatever size of a company is. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, some of the things that I'm starting to see now as I go through these compliance platforms like Veriforce or – IS Networld is there are sustainability questions in there, yeah. and you know they're they're centered around primarily environmental. There's very few social, and there's even fewer governance questions. Uh, so they, I, th I think they went after the low hanging stuff, right? Like, Absolutely, you can easily <laughs> develop a checklist for environmental stuff, and the other is a little bit uh, a little bit more challenging. But the things that I'm seeing in there are are th it's. It's all information that you have, but there's almost no way you are already tracking that. Yeah. So, like, how much diesel did you use last year? Well, that's easy. You just go pull fuel records. Yeah. But no one, no one's been doing that uh, in, in smaller companies. Larger companies, for sure, they have uh, to an extent. But yeah. Uh, and maybe you can expand on that. Yeah. When you guys started at Exeteran, <laughs> and you said, "Okay, hey." 
we need to know how much renewable energy we used versus non-renewable, how much diesel we used, how much gasoline we used, how much electricity we used. Um, I'm sure they had that information just like, sure, Kirk, here you go. Like it was easy. <laughs> that was not the case whatsoever. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny. It surprised well, it's me. good to hear that I'm not that uh, no. far behind and, the curve. And it's what was fascinating to me. What Another reason why this, this kind of ESG reporting became so interesting to me, being the environmental engineer and being driven by the finance and treasury departments, they had no interest nor knowledge of the operations enough to know where this data could come from. But they knew it was required. So they they knew it was there somewhere. Yeah. And but so no idea where to even ask to get it. Yeah. And so I was wow. I being, you know, as an environmental engineer, and you know, I'm licensed in the state of Texas. So I, I I came to the table saying, I can come up with the methodology to extract that data from whatever unstructured data we have within this organization. <laughs> and I will create the methodology that I will I know I, I it's not something I would stamp with my license, but I can defend well, it. Why not? <laughs> you know, I didn't have to stamp anything, yeah. <laughs> uh, luckily. But yeah, yeah. I, you know, I had to, I had to defend the process to a very, very minute level of detail because it was being reported through all SEC oh, yeah, yeah, requirements. Yeah, yeah. So internal auditors and were were very serious. But you had about to have the, the data to yeah. even to even run the methodology, yeah. and that wasn't easy to get. No, it was not. It was what they call it unstructured data where the request for information would be pulled from there's some from our real estate department on thousands of invoices for electrical um, usage for each one of our shops. Mm-hmm. None of that was digital. It was all PDF, oh. just electric bills. And then there'd be a lot of, you know, like what you said, pulling fleet fleet fuel records wasn't too bad. That's relatively simple to, yeah, to come and up Most with. of the time that's all, you know, in a database somewhere. Yeah. But then there's just a lot of other, kind of emissions kind of I guess different levels of emissions that need to be quantified that that a normal any normal company would not have the would take the time to have some digital quantification for. So looking at every single metric within these reporting methodologies was was a very kind of interesting, fascinating process for me. And that's how I became really, really interested in this. And what actually ended up getting me the job at ABS was pitching the need for operationalizing these metrics into an organization's data collection structure or operations, if it depending on the organization, if it's a kind of a chemical petrochemical plant, you know, figure out ways to to monitor and collect data that can actually be utilized and defended against really <laughs> intense scrutiny. And then I would imagine part of that is you know, that's, that's great. You can do that once the system's in place. Yeah. But I would imagine that almost across the board, wherever you go, uh, it's going to be, you know, a, a ton of, you know, raw data that you're going to have to plug in, especially historically. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, um, that's just going to be, I think that there's just going to be so much yeoman type work to even get this stuff going, um, that it's going to, it could necessitate, um, you know, people th- feeling like they need to bring on additional staff and things like. There's going to be a lot more involved in doing this, uh, and, and it'll definitely open up other industries and other, yeah. you know, other types of uh, opportunities. Um, but you got it all compiled finally, 
and got it all running. And then from that point forward, it was like no problem then, huh? Well, I guess you had to do it all again next year. <laughs> yeah, so. right. That's right. <laughs> but you, you, that's that's my point is that <laughs> it, it, even with a, a company the size of Xterra and Arch Rock, uh, and the resources at their disposal, and the you know the vast administrative staffing and and all of that 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 it had to have, frankly, then you then you bring that down to you know. Jim's service company that now has to figure this out and they have, you know, a hundred employees. That that's that's a whole different thing, man. And yeah. the, the impact is much more significant to the smaller company trying to aggregate this data than to Xterran, even though the the scope of Xterran's uh report or a company the size of Xterran's report is much larger. They they have a lot of support staff to help get that information. Yeah, and I totally agree. And even this kind of goes back to just even with like the IS Networks and those sorts of reporting agents or not reporting agencies, but those companies that kind of facilitate that just data capture. Yeah, capture, data right? capture. It I think that may be a good first couple steps to this for smaller organizations just to get to understand what is expected to be reported. Mm-hmm. Um, However, I mean, as as we as I've seen over the years, those those ISN requests from customers gets longer and longer every single quarter, every single year, and there, I guess you know that eventually that I guess that feedback loop doesn't really exist with those types of comp- those organizations though, so they're not terribly designed to help the those the smaller companies like learn how to better aggregate the information that they need and the roughest part about that and it's going to be less so with esg because it's all pretty standard the the even uh the the what makes it even more challenging is if you do reach out for support at ice world or veriforce or wherever they're industry agnostic so those people aren't specializing in oil and yeah. gas or specializing in petrochemical or any of those things so if you ask a very specific question uh sometimes it's really difficult to get an answer i remember uh, one of the guys I worked for, uh, for at Neighbors, a guy named Steve Olson, got into it with uh, ISNet World on fall protection stuff. And, of course, we had rigs and things like that where you had fall protection. But they wanted leading-edge uh, policy. We didn't do that kind of work. And he kept telling that person, we don't do that. And they're like, yeah. well, you need a policy. on." He's like, look. He told him finally, he goes, it would be cheaper at this point for me to start a business that does leading-edge work. <laughs> just to have the policy then to then to keep this conversation going. So you go over to ABS, you take, you know, uh probably, you know, a lot of the experience obviously that you had, you know, getting the information together and building out those systems and methodologies and things at Xterran, Artrock. You you go to ABS and and then you are looking for ways now to help those smaller companies, right? Yeah. And, and larger ones too, but I would imagine that the larger exposure right now would be you know, those mid-sized companies that are trying to figure this out. Yeah, that was <clears throat> my my kind of target industry was the smaller mid-sized organizations, especially in and the how are you gas. De- how are you defining that size-wise, I guess, would be, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. The, the easiest way for me to, to uh, <clears throat> kind of differentiate was just by market cap I mean, or an equivalent to a publicly traded company. Sure. Just a similar market cap or you know, that's how I was looking at it. And <clears throat> that's where I saw, I thought, there would be the biggest need eventually for this. I mean, the largest organizations have very, you know, they have whole departments around sure. this now. And 
and as you mentioned before, like the growing need for these type of people, I, boy, every, every one of the big four consulting firms is hiring like crazy people who have ESG experience. Though, if you look into kind of the backgrounds, a lot of the people who they're hiring are their finance and accounting folks, which no, not surprising is that's where a lot of this ESG reporting is mm-hmm. being dictated from currently. Well, and they're used to taking numbers and making them some sort of a, you know, intelligible yeah. <laughs> report, right? <clears throat> yeah. And I came in here thinking, or I came into this kind of uh, industry from the engineer's perspective saying, well, no one's talking to the operators yet. Like, are you mm-hmm. going to explain to them how to get this data information? Because someone's going to have to to either measure it or collect it or incorporate it into their operations so it can so it can be collected. And as far as I can tell, that had that gap has not been <laughs> spanned yet. And a lot of companies it has, but for the more kind of digitally forward organizations, a lot of that information is already collected and can be more easily extracted. But a lot of the organizations still haven't had to even worry about that yet. So I still think there's a, a growing <laughs> demand out there for industry, like a lot of oil upstream, midstream oil and gas companies and service companies who will eventually be told this information needs to be provided. and No one has really explained to them like what, what and how to get it. So do that. So yeah. you've got an audience now sitting here listening to this. Uh, and, and uh, the, the question that, that I would have after what you've said there is company X has, they, they know this is happening. They've heard it. They've seen it on their ISNet world or wherever they've seen a couple things about it. Uh, they don't even know where to start. So, uh, walk, walk me through what that would be. And, and if you were sitting here with a, a, a company or, you know, an, uh, the owner of a company that said, man, we got to ask for this and I don't even know where to start, uh, much less where, where it ends. Kind of walk me beginning, middle, end, you know, how you would advise that person. Okay. So my biggest, my biggest push in all, all this is transparency of, of an operation, which is not always an easy thing to that's a, that's a hard, hard one to get across sometimes. Um, but transparency and, you know, everything that can or possibly emit, you know, carbon dioxide or methane, depending on the industry. And I'm just going to focus on kind of that sort of portion of this for, for sake of our discussion. It seems it's the easiest one for me to explain kind of how to kind of quantify that sort of information. But what you're talking about, you would take the same approach with the S and the yeah, G. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so what I would what my my thought is that think of it as like an asset specific emission. And I mean this <laughs> we can go on a down a rabbit hole on discussing all the different scope one, scope two, scope three emissions sure. for everything and it's it'd be a long, long podcast. So I'll stick with just how to support folks. Um, my first step would say, let's look at every asset you have on your books and see if we can come up with what sort of mission um, kind of rates we, we can quantify for every piece of equipment you have. And an asset would be anything that could emit CO2, right? So anything from an actual, you know, brick and mortar building to a vehicle. Yeah. And it could be, what is the energy consumed to run it? What 
how much fuel is required for it to operate or and how much, you know, depending on the piece of equipment, what sort of leakage there is, what sort of exhaust there is. Like fugitive stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And to, to muddy the waters even more, you can go down the supply chain of where where was that gasket manufactured and did they account for, you know, there's a way to, there, yeah, it, gets, it can get really messy. So I like to focus on just operating assets. For me personally, I think from an accounting perspective, it's easier to translate that to, you know, there's there's some carbon accounting methodologies that I'm still getting fluent on and learning more about where you can assign emissions rates to each asset as a means to account for them. And it's gets really complicated. But in my mind, looking at every single asset on your books and having emissions rates for each one of them can more easily aggregate for financial reporting. And start there let's see what we can come up with every single one every the epa has a bunch of different um kind of equivalent emissions mm-hmm. kind of rates that a lot of companies and industries use as kind of a benchmark tool as well, well. like a standard deduction for your taxes so yeah you just start here you're probably yeah. doing this much yeah. yeah do you have 10 cars this is what your equivalent emissions are that sure. is that sure. sort of a, a, a conversion and just start there and just kind of from there, you can kind of kind of benchmark where you think your total emissions are, and once you have a, a starting point, you can find a place where you can like you know find ways to properly measure out in the field or out in, within your operation to get more more exact data. Depending on, I guess how how it benefits the organization's kind of core business. And when I got hired by ABS Group. I was in the risk and reliability department and one part of my my concept to them was using this as a means to for kind of asset integrity management where if you're monitoring all these different emissions and you're comparing it to the OEM's kind of uh, nameplate emissions rates for example if there is a discrepancy between what this should be emitting based on the original equipment manufacturer and what is actually com- was leaking out of it you may have a not just an, a, a CO2 emissions issue with a, an ESG report. You may have some asset issues where you can do some really kind of proper kind of intricate maintenance to, to allow that piece of equipment to last a lot longer. Or operate more efficiently yeah. or you know, whatever. Yeah. And one of my pitches that kind of precedes a lot of this with Artrock and Exterin when I would go out to the field from doing my environmental trainings and, and assessments I would tell them, you know, if you want to, you know, a good spill response plan is a well-run, well-maintained engine and, and compressor because it's, it's, it leaks right. a lot less if it's running properly. So if you're not focusing on that, then the spills will get a lot worse. And so that's always been kind of my mantra is, you know, get the business running properly and you'll at least eliminate as much as you can. And then from there, let's find some unique ways to either, you know, look at kind of innovative equipment to reduce emissions even further going back to the carbon account carbon right, yeah. uh, you can buy credits credits <laughs> yeah, you can buy credit. yeah yeah uh so so then that's so that's a good point and you mentioned something in that that's that i i struggle with and that's knowing where to draw that line right so you say okay so i i bought this piece of equipment and it when it's running has you know this level of emissions but when I bought that piece of equipment, the company I bought it from, you know, this was their emissions associated with producing that unit, right? And then how how far down that line 
should you go? And this is obviously just your personal uh, opinion, but how far down that line should you go? And then do you see people, you know, cutting it, cutting it off short or are you seeing the agencies that are looking at this stuff saying, well, you're not going far enough down the line, you know, kind of what does that look like? Because for me, from a business standpoint, I would say I'm going to look at our emissions and then that's where I'm going to stop. Yeah. I'm not going to try to figure out where my suppliers, you know, what their emissions are. That's their problem to deal with. Yeah. And you know, it seems though like the 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 large multinational organizations are just getting just getting hammered with this stuff with the expectation that they need to account for the entire supply chain. Right. Are you sourcing your vendors based on their sustainability stuff? Yeah. And are you need to be accounting for their emissions in your reporting. So it's not really run by uh, regulatory agencies yet. Um, oh, that's coming. Yeah. But um, adv- advocacy groups are absolutely pushing hard for that sort of information and that sort of transparency. And for me, personally, I believe that, I mean, if every organization was, uh, was already doing their own accounting of this information – then that whole downstream supply chain or wouldn't really be necessary. Yeah, it should all be. Uh, it's already if, accounted. If for. everyone's turning in accurate information, yeah, it's there, yeah. right? What's interesting about advocacy groups is that a lot of times they uh, are asking for things that they have no, no stake in actually putting together. They, it's super easy to ask for something if you don't have to actually produce anything. <laughs> uh, so. Um, so that's environmental. So you'd start with you know emissions, and and you'd say, okay, let's figure out what your emissions, and then you, you say you take that same methodology. How does that translate to the social? It, it, it's funny, uh, social like it, it's still, I mean, it kind of is almost all encompassing from the ESG standpoint. I mean, the further you kind of take emissions impacts to a community. I mean, everything becomes a social impact. Right. Easily, everything could be social, yeah. right? And, you know, I guess rightfully so. I mean, that's the kind of the, the mission of every organization is to be as, you know, least amount of social impact as possible or at least positive social impact. Sure. Um, so what do you see uh, companies when they when you're measuring? So environmental is easy. We said that already. It's easy to figure out what to measure environmentally. What are the metrics that you see most organizations looking at for the social, the S in ESG, boy, it it, it really varies throughout the throughout the globe. Really, um, from a metric standpoint, a lot of it is just is based on kind of community development and impact. Based on, um, I can't think of like specific like quantifying metrics for it at the moment. Of course, I'm drawing a blank, but. Um, it's it's a lot of it is just driven by kind of just ability to engage with local communities and and i guess yeah showing just how that impact is 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 just kind of i guess creating some sort of positive uh impact to local areas or financial benefit as well sure and and to your point earlier it's really um it, it can be a very slick slope uh and you start looking at it and saying okay well literally everything we do impacts yeah positively or negatively the you know the social side the community that we're in and 
you know, I can say that when we started looking at it for Wildcat, it wasn't so much of a, you know, how does our reduction in emissions impact this community? It was more like, what are we, what are we doing actively in the community? So it was more of a, and it wasn't metrics driven. I mean, it, it, I think the, the S more than any of it, the social side of it more than any of it, you can really cheapen the impact of it. If you say, well, last year we donated X, this year we're going to donate X times 10%. Just because now you're saying we're going to do it and we have to do it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and instead of we did it because we wanted to, even though we did want to, you're, yeah. you're going to cheapen it some. So for us, it was more of a look at what are we currently doing? And we're just going to continue when we build our reports, we're going to continue building the reports to celebrate the things that we did, not say here are things we're going to do. Is that kind of how you're seeing a lot of the social stuff shake out or are people, are you seeing any metrics like someone's objective, like objectively putting numerical metrics out? You know, there are some reporting kind of methodologies that have a lot of social metrics to them, but it's, some of it is more tied to just like, what are you doing? Like, are you, are you contributing to, to the areas where you're operating mm -hmm. kind of what you're more along the lines of what you're saying? Um, so I, it's kind of, it's, it's hard. I, yeah, I trying to think of unique situations where there are some kind of quantifiable metrics for that, but it's, it's still, to me, it, I think it's more valuable when it's not quantified. Yeah. You know, when it's just, it, it's in the spirit of truly helping the yeah. community. Right. Uh, and, and I think that, I think you're right about that. Sadly, I fear that eventually there will be metrics right there will be you know those once it gets into a regulatory agency which will eventually i think happen mm -hmm. uh, once that and even if it doesn't go to a you know governmental regulatory agency it'll be regulated by you know the financial side right the, the people lending um indirectly <laughs> regulated you know what i mean yeah um but i, I think that that's what I think that can be you can lose the heart behind the social side of it and and again I I don't I know industries across the board tend to do a lot for their communities and uh and hopefully that's not lost it doesn't become another you know they're doing it because they have to because of some mandate right um and so then using that same methodology that we use for the environmental side maybe the the answer there is let's look at what we're doing Let's let's find out what we're doing for our communities, and then sell it. Then the S becomes more of a a celebration, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. I mean, celebration starts with an S, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I it. I hope no one took that seriously, but uh, that, that'd be funny. <laughs> Spell it a celebration with an S. Um, and then so then you look at the governance side, and the governance side, I have seen hard metrics on that. Yeah, and it comes down to you know, you know, diversification of your management team or your board or, or whatever. Um, are you seeing, and that one there can be a bit sticky and a, and a bit uh, uncomfortable for people to, to address and to even want to address. And, you know, when Wildcat, you know, you know, our CEO is, you know, a Hispanic man and we have women on our board and you know, we're not, again, we're private. These are just things that were inherent in the way that mm -hmm. we are conducting business. And I, 
and it's so interesting to me, a lot of this stuff, even with safety, but with ESG is that if, if you're just a good company, these things are going to be happening anyway. Yeah. You know, and it's not, but to your point, once someone says, cool, you're a good company, tell me why you are. <laughs> yeah. People go, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. You yeah. Know? But uh, what are you seeing on the governance side in terms of, of those metrics and how would you instruct that, uh, you know, that, that owner that's just like, I don't even know where to start yeah. on, on that. So for, for governance, and this kind of almost bridges into the social aspect as well, a lot of the big big uh, kind of uh, pushes now are kind of the, the go around the like diversity, equity, and inclusion sort of metrics of, as you mentioned, kind of the diversity of your of your staff, of your board, of directors, of your executive leadership team. And, you know, if if you're expected to to meet specific metrics that someone has you have to take a, the company and the organization at that executive level has to take a hard look at the 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 people in the the that are at the executive level at the employee level and at the board level of, of well who do we have here and what are their what's their background who are they what's their gender what's their race it, they have to take us you know really take a look at all of that and really kind of see like well what does our what do our shareholders and stakeholders expect from us sure and that one can be, you know, from an executive level to a difficult one to It'd be a tough about. pill to swallow. Yeah. Man. And as you mentioned, I mean, if you're being asked to explain why you're a good company, you're almost kind of behind the eight ball already. Right. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I think a lot of these things, if, if managed organically and you're a good company to begin with, these things all just will, are kind of incorporated naturally already. Right. Um, but that's a lot. That's where a lot of this is. A lot of the social governance kind of demands are, which is I think it's a worthwhile exercise and yeah, to look into. And, and again, it, it can be a painful process. And oh, sorry, it's kind of it's anytime you look internally, uh, and it, sometimes it it well almost for me in, in particular, it's always a painful absolutely. exercise. But uh, you know, it, the other side of the governance coin is you know it's in terms of the things that impacted us when we were building our report out at Wildcat, it was very document intensive, right? Do you have a fair trade practices document? Do you have a policy on child trafficking? Do you have, and I found all of that to be really interesting because it makes sense to me to have an anti-bribery policy. And it makes sense to me to have a, a you know, and, you know, an equity and pay scale policy. That stuff makes sense to me. Who doesn't, think child trafficking should not be a thing. Like, why do I need a policy statement on that? Uh, and so, I, you know, that's kind of a, a jokey thing to say or talk about, but I don't know if you know the answer to it, but w what is the, the rationale behind having to have policies on things that are pretty much universally agreed on as not things that should be in the world? You know, from my observation, for those that like specifically the kind of the human trafficking and child um, labor one is yeah. another. Yeah. I, you know, I think from my, my perspective, it's, it's a means of, of uh, holding kind of, kind of international industries accountable, or at least trying to bring them up to a level that's equ it's equal to kind of how the U S organ U S based and operated organizations already are kind of expected themselves. Um, I think that's kind of where the, the intention is, is from a global perspective to kind of, you know, shed light on some of these issues within 
the supply chains that a lot of most of the most of the world depends upon. Sure, and I think that's a uh, that's pro- probably exactly right. And I, I tend personally, I tend to um, ascribe every part of my life to the way I'm used to living my life. Right. So I think, well, of course we shouldn't have yeah. children building cell phones. In fact, I'm going to call somebody on my mobile phone and tell them that. Right. And so, but the reality is that's not the way it is in, in other places. And, you know, that goes all the way back to, you know, the, the, the emission side. Right. So mm-hmm. the U S already reduces emissions year over year, you know, and you'll know this number better than me, but we tend to do really well. Uh, it's something that we're at least mindful of. Yeah. And so going back to my original kind of uh, ingest question on carbon credits, it can a company in Italy buy credits from a company in Texas. It's a global issue. But uh, at the end of the day, those other countries, a lot of times are not looking at it the same way. Right. They're, yeah. They're, you know, there's, they're still going to be like, yeah, we're going to reduce emissions, but we're also going to do what we need to do. Yeah. Uh, where the U S tends to, and again, we we're a very innovative country as a result of it. And we're, that's what makes us so great is that we look at it and go, okay, well, that's what we're going to do then we'll figure it out. So yeah. how, how do you account for that? Um, and, and how do you see that shaking out in terms of, um, overall how this will be impactful in the world. I, well, I absolutely agree with you. I think the U S will be more inclined to innovate as opposed to account for, for carbon emissions. And that's something that I'm actually really excited about where I I'm focusing a lot of my interest on currently is kind of how to cultivate some of that innovation to actually make this, but maybe not the words, not feasible, but facilitate this sort of transition, this energy transition. And, and what I've, what I really like is the fact that how geographically diverse the U S is where not one solution will work on the West coast, which will work on the East coast or the Gulf coast or Pacific Northwest or the great lakes regions. They all have unique characteristics. Or if you're in Texas, in West Texas or yeah, East no Texas or <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, you, you're talking about diverse geography. I mean, the U S for sure. And then you have large States like California's another, yeah. uh, that, you know, Northern California ain't Southern California, ain't, right? It's it a ain't. whole different yeah. place. I'm from so, Northern California. My wife is from Southern California. So we, we, we acknowledge <laughs> that there's a difference. The, yeah. yeah. There is a demarcation between Northern and Southern California. Is it Bakersfield? Is that uh, the line of demarcation? That's a little bit north, I guess. It's a little north. Um, the actual, yeah, the about San Luis Obispo, California, where my wife and I met and went to school, is more or less the center. And so it's that's, kind of, the, that's the that's the that's the uh, DM, D, demilitized yeah. zone yeah. of this <laughs> of the state. Uh, Very good. So so uh, San Luis Obispo, that is the uh, DMZ yeah. of California. Yeah. All right, cool. Which they 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 call themselves SenCal now as the, to differentiate themselves. But oh, sure. Um, going back to our original point, I've been really interested. To, I I was talking about this today with someone. How how different their these kind of scopes are to achieve these sorts of energy transitions in a very innovative and and technical way that actually will be a, a, a net benefit to 
industries and the U.S. economies and everything. And it's been really fun just to kind of, you know, we're trying to, ABS is facilitating, trying to facilitate all of them from marine and maritime and offshore industry space. So we get, we're trying to kind of con- contribute to all of them, which has been really fun, but yeah. they're all different. And I think it's good. It's better that way. Yeah. It, uh, I enjoy getting to, to work with a bunch of different, uh, different mindsets. Right. And so you're, you're going to be able to take you'll be in a unique spot, I think, to be able to take what you see in this place. And then you go over here and you say, well, you know, man, that they could use what they're doing over here and vice versa. Yeah. So that'll be uh, that'll be really, yeah. I think, rewarding. And not to discredit the kind of the European Union's kind of ways of doing this. They are they're about a decade ahead of the U.S. and their governance structure and managing this sort of this sort of thing kind of UNS the sustainable development goals and and their different organizations to try to facilitate a, a trans energy transition and carbon CO2 reductions but the collectivist nature of it seems to cause it to move a lot slower and that's where I think innovation domestically will will I think will I think blow them out of the water eventually so yeah, it'll it'll probably be a little slow coming, but but then you know once you turn that faucet on, it'll probably be, will definitely be leading the leading the way, which would be great. So, well, that's awesome, man. I I don't know how long we've been going, uh, but you know, is there anything else that you wanted to cover, or uh, you feel like uh, you know what what do you got going on at ABS? You, you guys looking to talk to other companies and and if there are companies out there they want to get a hold of you, uh, you know, all your, your information and stuff will be on the the announcement um but cool um you know we're we help organizations when kind of offshore technology companies uh, energy producers uh and marine vessel owners and ports and all infrastructure that supports the marine maritime and offshore industries and we have a, a a lot of depth and technical expertise in all of these kind of new new fuels alternative fuels energy transition related subjects and also traditional <laughs> subjects as sure. well and it's been really fun simultaneously learning and meeting all the the experts in the organization since i'm still relatively new then also selling it trying to sell it to organizations as well being able to kind of celebrate how kind of uniquely positioned our organization is to to support heavy industry and a lot of this stuff and it's it's going to be an exciting <laughs> it's an exciting time for for everyone, I think. Well, I can I can speak from uh, direct knowledge working with you and and uh, having you support you know me when I was out in the, the field working and trying to figure out uh, how to do things. There's there's no one uh, no one better at it that I've worked with. So uh, I would encourage anyone that has any questions to certainly reach out to Kirk and he'll be more than happy to have a discussion with you and and uh, even help with a solution if if need be. But uh, I do think this stuff is probably coming to a theater near you uh, at some point. So. Uh, Man, best of luck with everything, and I appreciate you coming out. And, um, man, I guess I will land this plane. Yeah, I appreciate it as well, Justin. This has been fun. Awesome, man. It's good catching up. Yeah. See you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission. Please subscribe to the Mission Zero podcast on your preferred streaming service, and be sure to give us a five-star review.